You're listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and today's episode will be our first Unlikely Allies interview. We'll be doing these interviews throughout the series, alternating with the recordings of our live SOCAP 365 events to go deeper into some of the surprising collaborations that are driving innovation and building new markets for impact. I'm excited about today's interview. This will be a great place to start because these are very unlikely allies at first glance, and they truly are creating new markets, which is what this podcast and conversations are all about. The novelty of these collaborations, that they are unlikely, isn't really the point. But what we're trying to get at is the value of collaboration across silos and that that does present challenges, but that the creative navigation through these challenges is forging something truly new in the world. So I'm so excited to welcome Penelope Douglas, who has been a core member of the SOCAP organization from early days and still a key collaborator of ours. Deborah Cullinan, who is executive director of the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, an arts organization in San Francisco that has the amazing mission to generate culture that moves people. And David Erickson, the director of community development at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Penelope, can you start with telling us where this collaboration started. Uh, I absolutely can. For purposes of this conversation, we're talking about a collaboration to create a very bold new model called Culture Bank. Well, really the start of all this goes back almost 10 years, and David will remember this. It came at the beginning of the Great Recession, um, and David was at the head of a conference of large financial institutions and, and community development finance institutions. And one of his speakers didn't show up. And David persuaded me to get up on that stage and talk a little bit about um, how I thought we should all try to weather the storm that was coming. And the moment that David asked me to do that, I knew that in David, I had someone who was potentially able to be an unlikely collaborator. <laughs> but in any event, if you go forward a few years after that and you bring us to the last uh, few years, as someone who had formerly led one of those community development finance institutions, I had become the chair of the SOCAP organization and I was deeply involved in social enterprise and I was more, more importantly, a deeply frustrated uh, social entrepreneur. I felt that the hundreds of millions, really the billions of dollars that were committed to community development investment were not producing the kind of lasting outcome that we sought in the world. And uh, fortunately for me, at about that time, which was about three years ago now, David invited me to become a resident scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank Community Development Division. And almost at the same time, because of my then uh, five-year-long relationship with Deborah Kuhlman, the CEO of the Arbor Buena Center for the Arts, going back to our days um, um, conspiring to create change in the world of arts and culture and enterprise uh, at the Impact Hub, Deborah invited me to be an artist in residence at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, exploring a question with the citizens of San Francisco about 
why we work. So maybe I should turn it over here to David and Deborah to talk a little more about their side of how this unlikely mashup came together. But for me, nothing could have been more timely than to have these two opportunities with these two allies. And that, of course, is the beginning of a story of how the collaboration began among all of us. That's great, Penelope. I'm happy to pick up from there. And David, you chime in. As you mentioned, Penelope, you know, I have the great privilege of running Yerba Buena Center for the Arts uh, here in San Francisco. And we are really trying to pioneer a new model for contemporary art centers that are very connected to their communities. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is how can an art center with its unique creative assets be a place that basically develops conditions for very unusual people to come together around really difficult questions, the kinds of questions that are, you know, holding us today in society and move those questions forward. And so we're very keen on building programs and structures that gather very different kinds of thinkers, artists and scientists and doulas and athletes and people like Penelope who are both right brain and left brain uh, in order to respond to questions. And when Penelope was doing the residency with us, we happened to be asking these questions about work and labor. We also had a question um, that we had posed to a group of fellows. The question was, what does equity look like? And when you start to stir those questions with thinkers from all over the world, artists, people across generation, you start to get really interesting breakthrough ideas. And for me, it's very much about what if our art centers, no matter their shape or size, were places across this country that would nurture that kind of dialogue and that would believe in their own capacity to not only source, but incubate breakthrough ideas like Culture Bank. And David, how do you enter this story? What was appealing to you about what Penelope was doing, what she was thinking about with Deborah, and how that fit into community development and the Federal Reserve? Well, I have to admit, um, I didn't get it at first. And it took me a long time <laughs> to, to sort of see the connection. Because, you know, for those of us who work in sort of community revitalization and urban development investing, when we think about art and that type of investing, it almost always is around this conversation around creative placemaking. So making a place beautiful so that you can help revitalize it. And that's a pretty well understood concept in community development finance. But what Penelope and Deborah were pushing me to sort of think larger about is this idea that, and here I'm reminded of an observation that a colleague of ours, Robin Hackey, a venture capitalist turned sort of community development financier, when she did an analysis about community investing around the country, she said, you know, basically, capital is like an airplane. It needs a landing strip. And uh, there are plenty of airplanes. There are lots of airplanes flying around, but there are not enough landing strips. And by landing strips, you need to sort of clear the brush and you need to sort of lay down the, the asphalt and build the terminal. And, you know, you really ha it takes a while to build an airport. And what I didn't realize and what they taught me was that artists can be the ones who sort of help clear the brush, help a community set a vision and help a community communicate among itself about how it's going to achieve that vision and start sending a signal to the airplanes that it's safe to land. Once I got that, once that light bulb went off, I realized that Culture Bank was a much, much, much bigger project than I had realized. You're listening to Money and Meaning. You can find out more about SOCAP at our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. 
with a list of our upcoming events, including our annual conference at the Fort Mason Center in San Francisco, October 23rd to 26th, 2018. And so Penelope, maybe you can speak, we've mentioned Culture Bank a few times, but maybe you can speak specifically to how that idea arose for you. Sure. David just gave us the beautiful analogy of the landing strip. And as Deborah and I continued a deep conversation about what it would look like if we could imagine a kind of investment model that would give the power to artists and artist enterprises to really create the kind of um, tapestry that, or it's David's landing strip, that illuminates the assets of value that exist in every community as a path forward for communities to become investors in themselves and for uh, those who view themselves as enlightened um, investors seeking impact to have a more productive stream of investment in these communities that we would create a system change. So the basic idea of Culture Bank is to invest in the artist enterprise, the artist and the artist enterprise, in order to illuminate assets of value that lie hidden and undiscovered or just simply undeveloped in all of our communities particularly and certainly in in marginalized and poor communities. These assets, once eliminated, whether that's language skills or knowledge of a geography or how to prepare food or community safety, these are um, these are the kinds of assets that um, allow members of a community to imagine themselves participating in a future where their community um, can create and then increase in value. So that's basically, there's a lot to say about the business model of Culture Bank, but that's basically the concept behind Culture Bank. It's illuminating cultural assets of value in order to make all of our community development investment more productive in the context of uh, a shared vision for a future of greater prosperity. Yeah, I love and there's an amazing medium post that really digs into this story as well. But that statement that communities that have traditionally understood as poor are not, I think, is a really important context for all of us to think in. And you guys have all been really digging into that. Deborah, I wonder, as I hear all of this in your, you know, decades of experience with artists, was this a light bulb moment? Was this something that you had been thinking about but not landing on for a while? Where did this come into your journey? Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's kind of both, right? Like like Penelope and I actually met when I was running an organization called Intersection for the Arts, and we joined in a deep collaboration with Impact Hub, and Penelope took on chairing the organization, and I got involved in SOCAP. And all of that sort of thing was fueled by my deep belief that without creativity and imagination, we cannot solve the problems. It's very difficult to support someone in a community towards a healthier life or a more prosperous life if they're not even able to look up. And if their lives are so difficult that they don't have the capacity to see a future for themselves and for those around them that is different, I don't think that any amount of community development investment or social service support will really be transformative. And so to me, I believe that artists are actually the existing but missing link to a system of support 
that is very integrated that will lead to inspiration and in communities and a different future for people. And I think that's been driving my work in various ways since I got into this. But that said, it takes people like Penelope and it takes me getting to hang out with David and learn about what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing and meet people with deep backgrounds in social finance and entrepreneurship and impact investment and all of this for me to be able to think of myself not as an arts leader, but as a leader, as someone who's a citizen who cares about the future and who can bring, because of my work life, the arts into the resource mix. So the aha, I'll never forget the day I was sitting with Penelope in my office. The sun was shining in. It was, you know, one of these great Penelope Douglas conversations where you're just kind of like soaking up the possibility and the poetry of it all. But I'll never forget it because we were just talking about equity and we were talking about how hard the work is and why we work. And we were talking about equity. And that just naturally led us to a place of what about abundance? What about thinking about the world, not as limited to wealth, to financial wealth, but to wealth of all kinds. And Penelope will talk a lot about the limited resources that we have, what is finite and money is finite. And as we know it now, there's just you know, I, I joke, there's just a few people who have most of it, which is actually not really a joke. But I feel like, you know, there's wealth of all kinds, and people have so much to bring. And we can be looking differently at assets and leveraging those differently towards this future that I think we all care about. I just want to highlight a point that Deborah made, you know, one of the things we've had about an eight year partnership with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to try to bring together those who are trying to improve health together with those who are really focusing on anti-poverty and improving the economic lives of low-income people. And, you know, when, so often that discussion devolves down, like I mentioned that idea about we used to think creative placemaking was making a place pretty. And similarly, in the health world, there's too, too often everyone starts thinking about oh, well, we need some bike trails and some a grocery store and a food desert so we can improve nutrition. And those things are important. But the most important thing about determining your health is whether or not you feel a sense of control over your future. And, it, you know, this, it's just so interesting that that's exactly how Deborah was describing how artists would be able to sort of tap into and help guide a vision for a community of where they want to go and help actualize that. And if people start feeling a sense of agency, then you start seeing a real possibility of not only making them more prosperous, as she says, but healthier as well. And that saves money to the system. And we're trying to find ways to create some kind of, you know, capture that value somehow and feed it back into the community as they avoid more cases of chronic disease, as they avoid more cases of, of violence, perhaps, or, or the, the, the kind of the byproduct that comes out of sort of the disorganization that could sometimes take root in the low-income communities. So one of the things that we think is just so powerful is this sort of vision setting and empowering that artists and arts organizations are able to impart on a community. And in that way, they become engines of economic growth and uh, engines of improved health. I mean, you see these things are all connected. Yeah, definitely. And I think that you're, you're both making this point that there's initiative and momentum and abundance in every community. So it's not about funding programs or, you know, coming in from a top down, but really unlocking that bottom up piece. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. 
I mean, I just, I just got off the phone with one of my colleagues at YBCA and, you know, we were having like this really typical capacity conversation about, you know, how much work there is and who's going to do it. And she said a thing that I think really relates to this. She said, we're all here. In other words, why don't we just reorient? We're all here and we can make the choice to do this and we can see who we are and what we have to bring to the table. And I feel like that's the spirit that we want to just help fuel. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about SOCAP 18 and SOCAP 365 at www.socialcapitalmarkets.net. And so in those conversations, I mean, I think, you know, within this really unlikely combination, Penelope, I'd be curious, as you are having these conversations with the Fed, you're having these conversations in an arts organization, as you think about pulling these together, what were the things that you expected to be hard about that? And then which parts actually were hard? Were there things that surprised you? Gosh, that's a big question. Well, I, I think what I expected was that the process of nurturing true collaboration, and by the way, we have many other, you know, collaborators in this rich mix of ours. And, you know, I know we'll have a chance to talk about that too. But I knew that the process of developing true collaboration would be slow. And I knew that it would require all the patience that I could muster. And I think my expectations of that were pretty realistic. And I should mention as, as a humorous aside that the name Penelope actually means patience. Penelope was the wife of, of Ulysses, and every day she would have to pretend that she was weaving a tapestry, and every night she would have to unweave it in order to stave off the other suitors for her hand so that her beloved could return home. So in any event, um, uh, I always have to call on my own name, but that was the expected, I think. <laughs> well suited to this work. Well suited. The unexpected for me, I think, mostly comes, and neither Deborah nor David will be surprised by this, and they'll have plenty to say, too, is all of the language problems. Um, as you create these unlikely collaborations, boy, do you realize what it really means when you try to um, nurture uh, a big idea across what you earlier referenced, Lindsay, as silos. So much of what we do in our lives, in our particular work, um, comes with shorthand, comes with language, comes with symbols, comes with our own culture of work. And for the symbol language, symbols and language and kind of the articulation of something complex and the language you use to do that, you know, again, of course, creates a set of reactions to the language. So I think that is and continues to be one of the biggest challenges that I think I greatly underestimated. And then no surprise either, each of us has had to play roles, I think, um, that have stretched us considerably, really made us sweat. <laughs> and I think that's true of, of the entire body of collaborators that form Culture Bank. And there are times when I'll go home at night and just be exhausted by the sort of nature of the activity and what it required of me. 
in an unexpected way, just and kind of the openness that's constantly required if you're going to continue to truly collaborate. You can't shut yourself down at all if you're going to really form these kinds of radical collaborations. You know, you have to listen carefully and remain very open. So those are the things that sort of set of language issues, the sort of translation issues, and then just the pure sweat involved in the stretch that's required. I think easy to underestimate for me any of those. Those would be my thoughts. Yeah, how did it go sort of socializing this idea with each of your respective organizations? Penelope, I think you articulated some of the sort of not surprising and surprising challenges, but I think also there's some basic things like this idea that YBCA, which is nearly 25-year-old organization in San Francisco, is undergoing this major transformation and in comes this wild project. And, you know, a lot of what I have to do and be careful of is just the change management and the bringing people along, right? So I I think of Culture Bank because I have the great pleasure of being able to work with Penelope so directly on it as a YBCA project, but it takes time to bring really disruptive projects into an organization that's been operating for a couple of decades. And I think that's right to take the time, um, but that comes with other challenges meaning the whole organization can't necessarily articulate it. It's a little bumpy in terms of when we're bringing the right experts from the YBCA team into the mix, this sort of thing. But for me, yeah, it's very much about how do you create the conditions in your organization that allow for really wild ideas that might take the organization in a slightly different direction in a way that doesn't make everyone feel concerned. I'd like to jump in on that point that Penelope made about language and how difficult that is to sort of get everybody on the same page and understanding the depth of some of these ideas. So I'm going to focus just on the concept of value as a way to sort of illustrate that. So Penelope and I wrote an essay that's a little unconventional for a Federal Reserve document. And if you Google Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and Culture Bank, you'll get that working paper. But the idea of value is something that's very hard to sort of, it has, it's like the layers of an onion, you know, and for me, the outer layer was something kind of went back to that creative placemaking sort of idea that's well understood at this point. And anyone who goes to the Mission District on a sunny afternoon will see throngs of tourists walking around looking at murals. And there are ways in which you can measure the foot traffic and calculate the enhanced sales to restaurants and stores in that area based on the art. There's actually, you could measure that value. What's the value of those murals? That's measurable. But you go in another layer deeper and you can think about the value that's created by giving a community that sense of hope. The kid that's growing up that is excited about going to school is reading at grade level, which is the best predictor of future health, better than body mass index or any other nutrition or exercise. So if you have that sort of sense of hope for the future, you have measurable improved health outcomes. And that value is accruing to whether it's Medicaid or Medicare or Kaiser or United Healthcare or any number of institutions can sort of realizing the value of that. But what Penelope and Deborah really got me to start thinking more deeply is going in even another layer in and thinking about really how do you unlock this sort of the potential of a community that doesn't even see itself yet? And so here I'm thinking of an example of a a muralist in San Francisco who was working the Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood, a low-income neighborhood that is both heavily African-American and Latino. And he had these young kids help him with a mural. 
And they were trying to figure out, you know, these are groups that didn't socialize together, didn't spend time together, maybe even fearful of one another. And what he was able to do was to get them to sort of picking topics and painting those topics and painting those ideas. And it focused a lot about sort of police presence and a fear that these children had about the level of violence in that neighborhood. And that became a bridge for those kids to each other and started planting the seed of a much stronger community. And that's a kind of a value that I still don't quite totally understand how you monetize that or how you sort of tap into it from a business standpoint. But I think it's there. And that's one of the real powers of Culture Bank is to sort of get us to sort of take a concept like value and just keep on driving down and down and down. And so as you guys have done that, it sounds like, you know, there's this language translation, these new pieces of value that you're all identifying. How has this then also unlocked additional collaboration. You guys have all mentioned this, that now there's many more partners within Culture Bank. Who are some of those partners and what was the process of bringing them in? Because we've designed this from the beginning as a series of collaborations, even our process of refining the design of Culture Bank was through a a type of think tank series of, of sessions. And those think tank members, a very diverse set of arts and culture leaders, social entrepreneurs, people like David as well, um, who represent large institutions and impact investors and others. Each of those, at least speaking for myself, and I think for all of us in our minds, was always someone that was also potentially a collaborator for Culture Bank as we moved ahead. So as a specific example, um, RSF Social Finance is a formal collaborator with Culture Bank. Impact Experience, an organization uh, founded by Darren Dodson and Janet Nicholas, is a collaborator to Culture Bank. And each of those leaders was initially a think tank participant in the Culture Bank design period as we moved into finalizing our proof of concept. But beyond that, we had members of our think tank that included uh, Clyde Valentine from Ignite Dallas, a program of Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And lo and behold, here a few months later, we're in a a very formal uh, partnership with a variety of organizations in Dallas, uh, catalyzed by Clyde and the Meadows School and SMU to uh, formalize one of our first pilots of Culture Bank. So those are just a few examples. But I think the important thing I was trying to reference was that original sensitivity to the values and principles of the design of Culture Bank is what unleashed and unlocked all this energy for collaborators to want to collaborate, including some of those I mentioned. That's great. I think back to the earlier part of this conversation and just my feeling that arts organizations and artists can often be isolated or perceived to be isolated or sitting sort of aside. And to me, I think we're successful when art and creativity are integrated into everything we do. And for me, just the growing number of, as you call them, unlikely partners that an organization like YBCA is in relationship with is really exciting. And to me, that's stakeholdership. That's how you build your connections and your relevance and your ability to be able to help contribute to what people care about. And so as we've sort of gone through this journey of how the initial idea of Culture Bank was generated and then this navigation to 
pull the pieces together and now it's really launched. So maybe as we start to wrap this up, can you tell us sort of what is the current state of Culture Bank? And if are there ways that folks who may be listening to this podcast can get involved or, or follow the further development of Culture Bank? Specifically, Culture Bank as a model, we're, we're finishing our proof of concept phase and we're moving to what we're, will be our pilot phase for Culture Bank. If you look at the Culture Bank model, how we're going to execute uh, Culture Bank, there are four core functions to the model of, of how Culture Bank actually works. Suffice it to say that one core component is what we're describing as creating the conditions for asset discovery, sort of advisory component that allows us to organize that in communities in an artist-led and facilitated manner. But another core function of Culture Bank is obviously an investment process. We've got a strong sense of what that will look like for the pilot uh, phase of Culture Bank. We know for sure that for our pilot phase, that it's really important to focus on the fact that it's a pilot <laughs> and to be sure that we do a very good job of appreciating and remembering and understanding all of the work that David and I did in authoring the piece that conceives of the structure of Culture Bank is one that requires of us to think over a generation or more's time. So the pilot is only the first step in a series of investments that the model will make. So for those who are interested, we seek enlightened donor investors who would, who would love to see their financial and other assets flow into the Culture Bank investment model. For the pilot, that will be donor capital in, and we'll invest that on the investment side um, using an integrated capital type of approach. So we'll, we'll create very unique investment structures very much focused on the capacity of these artist enterprises to illuminate these assets of value. As we move past the pilot phase, our investments will include all sorts of other structures uh, that include uh, financial return and the return of other kinds of value to community members and investors. But of course, we're excited to talk to anyone who would like to participate either in creating the conditions within a community of interest to them in which we can invest in these artist enterprises, or of course, as an initial investor. So yeah, hopefully this conversation has sparked some new ideas for folks who already, you know, really believe in the power of the arts or already deeply invested in community development and just showing the ways that there's still so many new frontiers. And we're so grateful that this unlikely set of collaborators is pushing through that. So thank you all for being with us today and for being our first Unlikely Allies interview and more from this group and many others coming through SOCAP channels uh, and at the SOCAP 18 conference, October 23rd through 26th. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Liz Maxwell. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more about what you've heard, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us at SoCap Markets on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.